Hi there. Thank you for choosing to listen to this sermon. We pray that God would use this as an added resource to benefit you in conjunction with you belonging to a local church near you. This sermon was preached at Central Baptist Church, Pretoria. 130 years of believers loving God, caring for one another and impacting the world. Looking over the congregation again, nice to see everybody here this weekend in spite of it being a long weekend. But uh, I am aware of Jim visiting us this morning from the USA. Welcome, Jim, for the visit. Nice to see you. And good to be together uh, worshiping and also in the Word. Uh, have been, we have been busy working through the book of Exodus. And so this morning I invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 17. So just those first seven verses we consider this morning. And as we come to the passage, it is our desire, our trust. What is it that God is saying and will say to me and to each of us? So reading from verse 1, All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and they camped at Rephadim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted uh, there for water. And the people, people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. The Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come up out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Let's just pray together. Lord, thank you for your word to us. Thank you for all of the Bible. Just a reminder this morning to me that your word is as a rock and fire. And Lord, we've been singing much about our hearts this morning. And I pray that as we turn to your word, that your word would stir deep in our hearts. Lord, leading us in paths of tenderness in our hearts. For you we pray. As your spirit works, as your word exposes us before you. As we respond in our need of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, I want to introduce the message this morning by uh, wanting to show you how easy we people, all of us younger and older people, how easily we people believe what is not true. You believe anything that's not true? Well, I confess I have and I do. Yes, some examples, some examples. Bats are blind. Many of you believe that bats are blind. They're not, they're not. A severed earthworm will regenerate into two earthworms. When I was little, uh, I had to work in the garden, and I remember often taking a spade, digging in the flower beds and 
and chopping an earthworm in half and, and thinking that's not a problem, just become two worms. It's not true. It's not true. Here's some more. Elephants are afraid of mice. Most of you believe this next one, as I did. Bulls become angry at the color red. They don't. Goldfish have a three to seven second memory. I don't know if it's much longer, but it's certainly not that short. A mother bird will reject her baby if it is touched by a human hand. Now my point this morning is I'm wanting you to think about what we believe, what we don't believe. And yes, uh, it is true, I guess, believing that which is not true is not all that serious when it comes to lesser things. Like the memory of a goldfish, does it matter? Uh, like uh, elephants, are they scared of mice? It doesn't matter. However... It is serious. It's very serious when it comes to life-affecting matters, when it comes to the truth of the Bible, when it comes to some of the issues that we're going to be confronted with in Exodus 17 this morning. It does matter what you believe and what you don't believe when it comes to your walk of faith with God. Now the psalmist... Now remember the Psalms are written after Exodus, but the Psalms, the psalmist in this instance, addressing a subsequent generation gives us some insight into that which these people did not believe in Exodus chapter 17. Putting it in different words, some insight into their unbelief that was present in the hearts of the people of Israel at this particular place of Rephidim. Let me read some of the psalm, chapter 95 and verse 7. He affirms what is true. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Then he issues a warning. Today, if you hear his voice, that is God's voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness. In other words, back in Exodus chapter 17, when your fathers put me to the test and, and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Hard hearts are easily detected by observing the symptom of unbelief. The two are connected. Hardness of heart and unbelief towards God and God's ways. As the psalmist put it over here, being people, hard hearts, uh, true of those people being people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Now Psalm 95, now you're noticing over here how the Bible interprets the Bible. So Psalm 95 is also quoted by the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 3 and verse 7 to 11. And then he concludes, he comes up again with a warning, referring back to Psalm 95, referring back to Exodus chapter 17, and he's speaking to his contemporaries. And as I'm speaking to you, my contemporaries this morning, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. 
that's, that's the passage this morning, this, this urgency, this, this important issue of, of guarding your heart, protecting your heart, develop, developing a hard heart. I, I, I've written down in my note here, similar to the ease with which we catch a common cold. In other words, any one of us can fall victim to becoming hard-hearted at any time, in, in, in any circumstance. And so we have to guard our hearts, take every precaution. Therefore, my, my one point this morning... Take every precaution to look after your heart. That's what we're going to deal with in today's message. I have a number of points that I'm going to bring to you from this passage. For you or me to meaningfully, meaningfully nurture a tender heart for God, it is necessary to deal with unbelief that stirs in your mind. And affects, of course, your heart. It's, it's crucial. It's, it's absolutely important, vitally important, to tackle and to, to eradicate, to get rid of detrimental lies that we so easily come to accept. See the repeated manifestation of this, uh, the fickle and wavering faith of the people of Israel, according to God, was largely due to them not knowing my ways. What then are the ways of God that we ought to be thinking of? What are the ways of God that they neglected? What are the ways of God that they did not believe? And so this morning, to address not knowing the ways of God from our passage, I want us to engage in some myth-busting. That's going to be my first uh, sub-point. Engage in some myth-busting. There's some things we, like the people of Israel... We think they're true, we suspect they're true, we may believe they are true, but they're not. In fact, they are error, they, they are lies. If they're not true, that means that they are lies. And so the very first myth, and I'm going to deal with three myths over here this morning, the first myth that needs to be busted, and I'm going to make this statement, the statement's not true, because I'm putting it up on the board doesn't mean it's true, it's, it's a myth, it's not true. When being led by God, the pathway will be smooth. Have a look at the first verse, chapter 17. All the congregation of the people of Israel, they're the people of God, moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord. God was leading them stage to stage, place to place. And they came to Drephidim, and there was no water there for the, water, for the people to drink. The people set out from the wilderness of sin. They traveled from place to place. They were following the Lord's instructions. They were following His commands. There was no doubt to them as to who was plotting their course. There was no doubt in their minds as to who was giving the marching orders. God was leading them. They arrived at this place called Rephidim. The name of the place simply means a resting place. Names were important in that culture. In their minds, the anticipation, a resting place. And they get there is, there's no water. Once again, their hopes of being refreshed at this particular place were dashed. So instead of finding Rephidim to be a refreshing place, remember Elam? Elam was the place where there were springs and there were palm trees. At this place, no water. Leaving them disappointed and disgruntled. 
Now again, think of them in their situation in terms of where they'd come from, despite having been led by God in the past into some difficult situations. They still kept expecting, anticipating the road always to be smooth, the next leg of the journey to be without any challenges or hardships. The expectation was it ought to be easy. It should be smooth. Only then to be disappointed and resort to grumbling. So, so the, the, the myth, you, you as, as you live your life, as, as you have this walk of faith with God, uh, it's a mistake for, for you or me to believe that our pathway to heaven will be without hardship and without suffering. Don't believe the lie. Don't believe the lie that has been told in our society. You'll save yourself a lot of turmoil of soul when you refuse to believe the lie that people sometimes even in churches are propagating that life with the Lord is a life of perpetual ease and prosperity. Not so. Not so. Sarah Edwards was the wife of that famous revivalist uh, Jonathan Edwards wrote a note to her daughter after his death. And I wrote it small in my notes. I'm going to have to take my glasses out because I couldn't read it properly at, at, at the hill. But Sarah Edwards said to her daughter after Jonathan Edwards died, he died of smallpox, what we would think was prematurely. He was young. He still had a lot to do in human uh, terms. She says to her daughter, what shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. She understood that the life to heaven, on the road to heaven, would be difficulty, but it doesn't take from the fact that God is good and, 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 and that He's holy. And, and so this issue of suffering is something we need to understand. The Father sent His Son Jesus, we sing the song, on a road marked with suffering, excruciating suffering. His redemptive purposes were accomplished through Jesus walking on the road of suffering to the cross. One occasion, just in terms of the general religious community, Jesus warned his disciples of the same truth. Persecution and suffering ahead for them, he said, uh, Matthew chapter 10, verse 24, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. If Jesus was to suffer, his disciples would suffer. Are you a disciple of Jesus? You claim to be a professing Christian? Well, then you need to know that on this road to heaven, you may have to walk through some difficulties. And so again, I say this morning, refuse to believe the lie. You will find yourself disappointed and disgruntled. Don't believe the lie that God always leads His children along a trouble-free pathway. I want to illustrate this uh, from that well-known allegory. Maybe the younger people today, I want to urge you to, to read John Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress. Uh, I think those of us who are older were more exposed to it in another generation. It's been one of my favorites over the years, and, and uh, I, I've read it repeatedly, even to my children, again and again. Uh, and, and I want to read uh, an excerpt from Pilgrim's Progress that demonstrates and illustrates this particular point. This little excerpt speaks of three different characters in the book of Pilgrim's Progress. There is number one Christian, 
Remember, he was fleeing from the wrath of God and he found the wicked gate where he met Jesus as his Savior and he was pursuing this journey to what he calls the celestial city, what we would call heaven. But there are two other characters that we meet in this particular excerpt, one by the name of formalist and another by the name of hypocrisy. They think they're Christians, but they didn't come via the cross. That's where I'll pick it up. Now, I understand that they, that's the three uh, characters, all continued until they came to the foot of a hill, at the bottom of which was a spring. At the same place, two other ways joined the straight way coming from the wicked gate. These other two brothers, not brothers, they're coming on this other road. One turned to the left hand and the other to the right at the bottom of the hill. However, the narrow way continued straight up the hill. The name of the hill being Difficulty. So Christian first drank at the spring for refreshment, and then he commenced to climb up the hill saying, This hill, though high, I covered to ascend. The difficulty will not me offend. For I perceive the way to life lies here. Come, he speaks to himself. Pluck up, heart. Let's neither faint nor fear. Now, folk, listen to this next phrase. Even if you miss the rest, this is so important. Better, though difficult, the right way to go than wrong, though easy, where the end is woe. Can I read that again? Better, though difficult, the right way to go than wrong, though easy, where the end is woe. Well, the story carries on. Thus formalist and hypocrisy also came to the foot of the hill. Yeah, they saw that it was steep and high, and that there were two alternative ways for them to go along, which they imagined would later join the way of Christian beyond the, beyond the hill. So they decided to follow what appeared to them to be the easier routes. The name of the one was Danger, the name of the other, destruction. So they proceeded, one proceeded along danger, which led him into a great wood. The other went along uh, destruction, which entered a wide field full of dark mountains. And there he stumbled and fell, never to rise again. Do you get the point? You, you, you make choices. You've got to make decisions. And, and, and as God sets the path before you, he, might, he may set, he will set some difficult Seasons, some difficult circumstances, some difficult times. While formalist and hypocrisy, they took what they thought is the shortcut, like many people today, many professing Christians, but to their peril. But in Christian, a determination in the face of temporary difficulty on account of his living hope. He understood the Bible. He understood what it means to be a Christian, a real Christian, the living hope. Remember from 1 Peter chapter 1, caused to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Dear friend, God may lead you to and through many hardships on your way to heaven. But know that he always does so with a redemptive purpose in mind. Myth busted. Myth number two. Shifting the blame onto others absolves me from responsibility. That's a lie. That's not true. 
Many of us find it hard to willingly take responsibility in times of hardship. In our text, the people of Israel, the immediate response in the adverse circumstances was to attack Moses, to lay the blame of their situation at his feet. Second verse. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? See their dissatisfaction? They believing, them believing they deserved better than the provision that they'd already been given. And it leads them to an outburst of grumbling to Moses. Now, if you're really thinking through the passage, you might be thinking, well, how could they take responsibility in a context uh, where they were not determining the circumstances at Rephadim? Well, good question. But according to Psalm 95 and verse 8, it was not their circumstances, it was their response to the circumstances that they needed to take responsibility for. Instead, you see, according to the psalmist, they hardened their hearts instead of taking care of their hearts. They should have known better. After all, God had previously miraculously provided water for them. Remember when He made the bitter water sweet? They'd seen His work. They could have, they should have trusted God, believing, believing. Psalm 95, people of God knew this. He is our God. We are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. But they did not. Even after Moses warned them about their questioning and their grumbling and the action of putting God to the test, they dug their heels in, they resisted, and they became even more hard-hearted. They continued in disbelief and grumbling. And notice verse 3. The people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Folk like them, you and I can't change our circumstances. My wife has a terminal disease at the moment. I cannot change it. But I have a responsibility in how I respond to that circumstance. You have difficulties in your life. And the decision and the responsibility you have is will you harden your heart against God and blame God or blame others? Or will you take responsibility of taking responsibility to be tender-hearted toward God. Our response and our attitudes, we need to take responsibility for these. Nurturing a tender heart for God. When things don't go the way you think they should go, there's a challenge here. There's an urging here this morning. Take care of your heart. It's the most important step before you jump at others and blame others and blame God. The actions of others, what they may do to you. The dark clouds, the adverse circumstances, don't absolve you from taking responsibility for the way you behave, the way I behave. The actions of others and these adverse circumstances, more often, you know what they do? They expose the condition of our hearts. 
The serious unspiritual condition of the heart is what Jesus pointed out to to the Pharisees. He says this is the real problem. Matthew chapter 12 verse 34, you brood of vipers, speaking to the religious community, the Pharisees, how can you speak good when you're evil? You see, he's addressing the heart. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You see, they, like us, constantly need to bust the myth that by shifting the blame onto others, we are absolved from responsibility. It's not true. There's a third myth that also needs to be busted. Simply called it the myth that God is absent. Moses sums up this incident describing the condition and the response of the people in verse 7. He called the name of the place Masa, that means testing, Meribah, quarreling, uh, because of the quarreling of the people and because they tested the Lord by saying. What did they say? They questioned, the next question, they doubted, is the Lord among us or not? It's a myth. They believed the possibility that God was not with them. Now, in in their unbelief, Expressed in the grumbling, they doubted the presence of God. Now, now that puzzled me. If you know this passage, it ought to puzzle you too. Because, because in the past days and weeks, we know, we know that God had been leading them by day with a cloud. And by night with a fire. How, how did they not see it? How did they not recognize that God, in fact, was present? Well, the question I came to, the answer I came to in answering the question is the answer can only be that hard hearts detrimentally affect spiritual eyesight. By not taking care of their hearts, they must have become so self-consumed they could not see the wood for the trees. David We all know David as a man after God's own heart. And yet we read of instances where he too vacillated, expressing in a similar way a sentiment in Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Had God forgotten David? No. Psalm 10 Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? It's it's wrong to, to think that. God was not absent in the wilderness. God had not forgotten David. God does not stand far off and hide himself from his people. Yes, it may feel like that sometimes, but the truth of it is, is that God is always present. Just take a moment to think about The serious implication, if it were true, that God was absent or God forsook his people. Number one implication is would challenge the very word of God. You wouldn't be able to believe the veracity or the truth of the word of God because God's word promises, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And it would also challenge and undermine the nature of God. We know the nature of God is everywhere present. And specifically present by His Spirit in the lives of believers. It's a myth that must be busted. God is not absent. God is everywhere. God is with you. Folk, whatever your struggle, 
I've learnt, I hope I've learnt, that at times there have been and may even be individuals that think that they are the only ones who have a unique kind of difficulty. I want to tell you today that many people have different kinds of difficulties. And whatever that difficulty is, it's a struggle to that particular person, man or woman. But I want to tell you, whatever your difficulty is today, whatever it is, if it's loneliness because of singleness, maybe because of hurt, because of what somebody has unkindly and maliciously said, Maybe it's the difficulty of disappointment. The disappointment of being unable to have children. It's hard. The difficulty of illness, cancer. We have people in our church struggling with illness. People who are suffering because of unemployment and poverty. Hardship. People who have lost loved ones. Grieving, grieving people. I want to say to you, whatever your difficulty is, you know it, God knows it, and God is with you. He's not absent. Take every precaution to guard your heart against believing that God has abandoned you. But let me move on now. Taking every precaution to look after your heart by engaging in myth-busting, and I hope I've done that this morning. But I want to move on now by... Uh, Going on to showing you by believing, and I want to urge you, remind you, believing Jesus provides for your greatest need. So back in the wilderness, how do we describe, describe Moses? Exasperated, I think is a good English word. This guy is at his wit's end. What does he do? He cries out to God in verse 4, What shall I do with his people? They're almost ready to stone me. And again, I'm amazed at what God does, how God responds. God follows His request with generous provision. A clear demonstration of God's amazing grace toward grumbling and undeserving people. Verse 5, the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and, shall, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the, Israel, of the elders of Israel. Now, again, let's just think about application. Here at Horeb, we see a specific miracle from God in a specific situation of need to a specific group of people. Fresh water was supernaturally provided to satisfy the thirst of the people of God. Now, one of our members forwarded me a WhatsApp with an attachment this week from Tswani Municipality. And I read the notice. And it was a notice that at the beginning of April, so if you don't know, take note. At the beginning of April, due to some work needing to be done on a major supply pipeline, we won't have water in Swanee for three days. You better go and buy some drinking water. 
My point is this. We must not expect God to repeat the miracle He did at Horeb for us at the beginning of April. That's not the application of the passage. That's the wrong application. It's a distortion of the Bible. What we need to do is understand and see that there is a significance beyond having these people having their hydration needs met. We need to see the message for us as interpreted by Paul, led by the Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. And all drank the same spiritual drink. They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. How exactly they, the people of God back then, drank from Christ as the spiritual rock that followed them, I don't know. Don't know. But the message for us can be understood by seeing a very, very important interpretive principle. The Old Testament, when you read the Old Testament, the Old Testament temporal, what was happening then, and physical, water from a rock, illustrates the New Testament eternal and spiritual. Paul is pointing out, in other words, that the rock that supplied the living water for Israel was a type of Christ, pointing to Jesus and the work that he would do. He provides living water. This is what Jesus does to you and for you and for me, providing living water for all who thirst and ask him for it. Pointing to Jesus as the one who can provide for our most desperate need of eternal life. I did find some interesting uh, parallels from an author, Roger Ellsworth, between the rock that Moses struck back at Horeb and the saving work of Jesus. And I'm going to run through them just uh, to encourage you this morning. As the people of Israel would have perished without water, you know, you don't drink water, you die. You know that. So, sinners will perish eternally without salvation. Number two, as the rock appeared to be a very unlikely place from which to get water, isn't that true? You can't squeeze water from a rock, I think is a saying that we, we, we make. Well, God, God can. So, the cross of Christ appears to be a very unlikely way for God to provide eternal salvation in the wisdom of man. Thirdly, as Moses had to strike the rock to draw water from it, to get the picture, so the Lord Jesus Christ had to be smitten on the cross in order to provide secure salvation. Next one. As the water that flowed from the rock was more than sufficient for the people of Israel, be encouraged, believer, so the salvation that flows from Christ's redeeming death is more than sufficient. We don't need any additions or addendums or appendixes or add-ons from clever people. Next one. As the people of Israel had to personally drink of the water from the rock, so sinners must by faith personally receive the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, boys and girls, young people, here is an important lesson. Because daddy drinks water, it doesn't satisfy your thirst. In the same way that your daddy and mommy might be believers having received Jesus and believing and repenting of their sin, 
You need to do that yourself. You can't depend on their action for your benefit. And then just one last one. As the Lord Jesus Christ was the rock that followed the people of Israel, so Christ continues to walk with His people after He saves them. He continues to grant them grace. And you know what? It's one day at a time for their spiritual needs. Well, let me close. Couldn't resist going to the woman at the well. Because, I mean, that immediately came to my mind. Uh, Jesus meeting the woman at the well, explaining this necessary provision of Christ, Him as the living water. And He says to her, everyone who drinks this water, this is the temporal water, the water from the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What about you this morning? Jesus offers, has offered, continues to offer to give to whoever drinks of the water. Now he's speaking there of, of believing and receiving uh, the, the work that he's accomplished, the achievement of salvation, the redemption. And in a fountain of refreshing vitality that satisfies spiritual thirst, nothing else can do that. Not just once, but permanently. Jesus is saying to the woman at the well that he has a gift to give that will deal with the emptiness that was gnawing at her soul. Remember, she husband after husband. And we have people today running after this and running after that and finding some. No! Drink from Jesus. You'll find satisfaction for your soul. The salvation from the consequence of sin that He gives is satisfying. The receiving of this gift brings meaning in the present. It also brings purpose of life into the future. Because we're on our way to what I love, uh, 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 John Bunyan's term, the celestial city, heaven. He can provide for your greatest and most desperate need. Jesus, come to Jesus. Lord, thank you for the gospel. All that has been accomplished, that which has been achieved historically. And Lord, help us to be those who drink, who believe, who receive this morning, afresh even, the benefit and the blessing, the satisfaction of soul, drinking from Jesus. Help us, Lord, to be those who willingly repent from our sin, Place our faith in Jesus, honoring you, glorifying you, having a hope that will never be dashed. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon. Find out more about Central Baptist Church at www.central.org.za.